I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, true and real stories from the fringes of classical music. How you doing today? Everything's good so far. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of day left for things to go south. But... Yeah, of course. Well, there are always, and, and a lot of time for things to go even further north. So. That's true. Yeah, or further east in, in your case. Shout out to living on the east side. Oh, you mean the east side of St. Paul? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, east siders, man. That's, um, that, that's, they're, they're the tough ones. What do you uh, mean by St. that? Paul. What's that? What do you mean by that? They're the tough ones. Uh, east side of St. Paul has historically been uh, working class, people who work blue collar jobs, you know, manual labor. Right. And, you know, um, me, me and Dell, when we moved to St. Paul, we, you know, I, I rented our apartment sight unseen. So I, I didn't really know anything about you scored. The, the neighborhood or, or anything. I was just trying to find a place to drive, you know, to come up here with the U-Haul and have a place <laughs> to put it all, you know, without me feeling stressed out in a hotel room and, and all that, you know, so it definitely worked out. And, you know, the, the neighborhood we lived in, uh, we uh, we landed in is good. And. It's difficult for me because it is very much, you know, an an upper. I mean, you can tell me more about that neighborhood than I can. You know, I've only been there for, excuse me, some some months now. But I, it, I'll never afford to buy anything in that neighborhood. Right, and and see, and and that's that's the problem because for me, I I look at some of these homes that look very, you know, modest, you know, and and I know that I just can't afford to buy there, and I feel like. I should be able to, you know, I feel like I have a pretty good job and, and, you know, my attraction to staying in that neighborhood isn't because it's safe or because it's whatever, but because of the proximity to, um, to, again, to public transit. I'll, I'll tell you, if, if I could jump on, you know, um, the express bus or a train or something over where you live, I would have no aversion to buying a home over there. But again, I I don't want to have the stress of trying to figure out how I'm going to get to work in the snow. You know, I'm a southerner, so yeah. see, seeing four inches of snow on the ground is a lot for me, much less a foot. And you and you mean to tell me I still have to come to work, you know? So oh, I'm yeah. so I'm doing what I have to do right now as far as paying for my location, but um and and unless I plan on investing in a snow cat, I'm probably gonna <laughs> be where I am. I don't I don't know. Uh, like a maybe you want to be a part rental in a snowmobile. Maybe who knows? I don't know. <laughs> um I've thought about hooking radar up to a, uh, a sled, you know? Shout out shout out to Radar. He's a very good dog. Um, you know, the your guest in this interview segment today is Kathleen Bradbury, and she's a, a, a producer with Performance Today. Yeah, and um, what we talked a lot about was being an ally. So, so far on Triloquy, um, every, every guest is, that I've interviewed has been black. Well, mm-hmm. you know, n- now, you know, I, I thought it was a good time to sort of get a, a different uh, perspective, you know, you know from a, a white woman. And I'll, you know, I'll, t- I'll tell you what kind of sparked this conversation. So Ed Sphinx, we both um, attended this panel discussion about changing the status quo. And you got representatives from um, the the Met Orchestra, as well as um, some of the, you know, quote unquote, top schools, Juilliard. Um, maybe there was someone from Manus there. I'm, I'm not remembering uh, right now. But but anyway, you know, in this conversation of changing the status quo, you had a stage full of um, white people, an audience full of people of color ready to, you know, ask questions and we had to sit here and listen to, and no shade, you know, but we had to sit here and listen to them talk about how their, um, how their 
uh, what what do you call it? Like their their diversity techniques and their and their um, their uh, diversity initiatives and their school mm-hmm. and, and all of, and all of this sort of thing. And it just brings up so many conversations, um, specifically concerning what it means to be an ally and 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 when it's time to step up, when it's time to step back. Um, I'll say going into that um, panel discussion, I, you know, if, if I couldn't see people of color um, on stage in these in these high positions at these very well-respected uh, institutions of classical music, I at least needed to hear from as many people in the audience as possible. And um, there's a there's an app for these uh, events called Slido, where you enter your question and it goes just into this queue um, that the hosts can um, that the hosts on stage can read. So my the first thing I did, I didn't attach my name to it, but the very first thing I did was ask the question. Um, why are there no black people up here on stage? That was you know? the top question too, wasn't it? Yeah, and 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 that was just the energy in the room, and you know there was a lot of time spent, you know, circling round and round, and you know at the end of the day, the the role of an ally oftentimes is to step back and and let the person that you're vying for, you know have a chance to speak and have a chance to offer their perspective. Yeah, Kathleen makes a great point of that, too. And I think the fact of the matter is, is that you probably have a lot more allies out there than you know, and they don't know how to proceed. And so there might be withholding, you know, not uh, you talk about stepping away and letting uh, this person of color do their thing. But but where do, where does that come from for you, for you to say that? there may be more allies out there than you think because from what I've seen in the past couple of years, it makes me think that there are more non-allies out there than, than I might think. Um, judge, if I were to speak just for myself, um, I'm not going to say that I had a privileged upbring, upbringing, but I did have a sheltered one. Mm-hmm. And uh, the neighborhood that I lived in uh, my, at school, it was a healthy mix. It was diverse. But Growing up in a household where uh, I did not hear racial slurs, I didn't hear stereotypes or, you know, um, uh, anything negative about other races. And so when I would go to school, it was fine. You know, the, I felt like we were all getting the same. Well, then what was your relationship with bigotry and racism if you weren't experiencing that at home? Did you know that? as a thing to exist because, uh, you know, my challenge with a lot of allies is that they believe that, you know, racism is not systemic and bigotry does not exist on the scale that people think that that's always the argument that, that I hear from folks. I don't think that I'm one to comment on that because I'm not experiencing it. But, but, Um, but, but I guess what I'm asking, did, did you have a concept of racism existing? Um, Not yeah, not until much later. That's interesting. Yeah, not That's until, interesting to me. Not until much later when, uh, you know, because when you go to uh, junior high, all of a sudden you've got, you know, three or four other schools yeah. that are joining you there. And that's where it became, you know, because I started hearing other kids saying racist things in all these other different directions. And I tried to stay out of it. So why I'm saying that you probably have more allies out there than you realize, there's probably people like me who didn't confront it who didn't have to deal with it too much. And now that we're in this situation where you can be identified as an ally, they don't know where to start. You know, they don't 
They don't know what is acceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you intervene? You know, because they talk about it, like if you're on the bus and you see somebody being harassed, like if you see a Muslim person being harassed for their for their dress, that you're not that some people say go over and sit by them and start asking them questions and intervene that way. And others say that you're not supposed to do that. I don't, I don't know what is correct. So, so you feel like as an ally, the the rules just aren't really, you know, clearly identified. There. So what do you think your role is? Well, do you consider yourself an, an ally to, let, 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 let's say, to the black community? Do you consider yourself uh, an, an ally in that regard? Um, all I can say, Garrett, is I'm trying. I, I really am trying, and I'm still make, I still make mistakes. But uh, I, I think that it's going to take time. You know, people are still going to make mistakes. You know, what what you've made me think of is the idea of unconscious bias. And and that, you know, that plays a, a big role in conversations like these as well. And I'll put myself out there um, by saying, you know, I, I take the train pretty late at night to work. And, you know, there's a certain type of character that we're, we're taught to be a little fearful and of. And stay away from, you know, sure. And sort of stay away from. And... Um, as, as I continue to grow and evolve, I make a point to not be afraid of of my brother or my sister or, or, or whoever, you know, and just just to make sure that I'm really, um, you know, walking what I talk, so to speak, because even as as a black person, you know, we, we have to consider the idea of intersectionality. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a black person who's gay and someone Someone who is black may target me for, you know, for being that, gay, right. you know, so or, or, or whatever it, it could be. You know, there, you know, I, I, I think I said a, a couple episodes ago that, you know, moving here to St. Paul was my first time seeing a lot of uh, black people who are Muslims, you know, um, you know, the, the large Somali community here. And and, you know, I'm, I'm sure they have faced, um, you know, issues from black people for that, you know, so, you know, intersectionality is a thing, um, you know, when, when you want to talk about allyship and it, it, it really gets into a complicated conversation. But, yeah, I think at the end of the day, for me, it boils down to just, um, you know, loving your um, your fellow citizen and and really doing your best to to make sure that you're um, presenting yourself authentically and that um, you can be uh, received and perceived authentically and, you know, as an ally when you need to be really stepping up and and, and knowing when to speak and really sitting back and knowing when to listen. That's key. I think that that's key. And um, one of the things that you and Kathleen talked about that resonated with me is she talked about when you grow up in the system, it's hard to call out the things that are wrong. You know, Mm -hmm. you don't see it, you know, and I think that that's happening to a degree for me and for people that uh, like me are trying to do better and that we have a responsibility to make that happen. And that and that is the point I always try to make. You know, when we talk about allies, there's this conversation of patting them on the back for for being an ally. Yeah, the social warrior thing, I don't and, like that much. And and from my perspective, again, you're doing what you're supposed to do. You know, it's 
but you know we talk about equality and then we talk about equity and and that equity piece is, is what we miss so much equity is understanding your the 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 space you hold and the role you play both historically and when it comes to the future. There are certain privileges that we both have as men that that women don't have, and it's our responsibility. It's our job to acknowledge that and offer space where we can, and we shouldn't get a pat on the back for that. You know, when, um, when, a, when a white person goes to bat, for a black person and, and quells racism that they see in their in their job or just in their everyday life, you know, that is not a pat on the back moment as far as I'm concerned. It's a you being a decent human being. Right. Moment. You should be behaving this way anyway. Right. Right. Um, and now how it relates to music. You guys were talking about how we are in a position to... Um, share and show people that there is more out there than the 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 hot 100 that of classical music of classical yeah. music yeah or instrumental music or or whatever yeah you know the when we talk about racism being systemic i think classical music is a shining example so when you turn on classical radio you know, nine times, nine and a half times out of ten, you're going to be hearing a piece of music by a dead white man. And and that's just that. And and that has just been built over the centuries because who is in charge of, you know, everything surrounding classical music from the programming, if you want to go all the way back in time from. Um, the men who had access to careers um, in in composition, you know, today who is who's putting you know together the the an, or an orchestra season, you know, who, yeah. who's who's compiling radio um, playlists. Not to put you know ourselves out there so much, but you know, I I feel like I have to insert as much blackness into. Um, into what I present over the radio as possible because it's just not there and and that's and again that, that that's something that we we have to you know always work back toward is, is making sure that um, that we're playing catch up in a way all of the music that was being written over time especially by women and people of color is not in the canon and it's up to us to uh, you know create the taste to create the canon and I think Kathleen and I talk about that um, that is the next thing that I was going to bring up we're in a position to be tastemakers right you know we can say okay we're not going to play this Arcangelo Corelli concerto grosso number 14 <laughs> yeah you know I, you made you made a great point is someone having a driveway moment to this? And you know there may be, yeah. but I am going to bet no. <laughs> that <laughs> no that is just Corelli. No, no, <laughs> and it has its spot. But I mean, I think that every moment that we've got on the air is a precious spot to be able to make an impact. You know, and I think that we yeah. should be treating it that way. And that's why I wanted to play this uh, quick segment from uh, a woman composer. Uh, um, I. Let's talk about that, too. We shouldn't even need to say woman composer, because as soon as I say the name, you're going to know. Well, we shouldn't have to say it, but yeah. we do because, again, we're we're fighting against the status quo. Same for composers of color. You know, every time it's a black composer, I mention it. So uh, but but this is a this is a, a, a composer who is a woman who you say that I would know immediately. Well, she's moving the needle. Okay. As far as I'm concerned, she's doing interesting sounding things. 
that uh, that I think is going to get traction. Well, let's and, take a listen then. Now, even just from the opening few bars of that, she's got my attention. Yeah. And that, that ensemble's called Room Full of Teeth. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't think I know this composer, though. Uh, it's Caroline Shaw oh, is her name. Wow. And yeah. that is uh, the Sarah Band from her partita. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go on... Uh, you know, they've done the Tiny Desk concert at NPR. They've got also to watch them perform live is hypnotic. Yeah. And the sounds that they're producing to me sound like it's almost electronic, like it's been um, uh, uh, circuit bended. Right. A little right. Bit. Yeah. There, there are a lot of people that, you know, would hear that clip you just played and not think of classical music. But it is as far as I'm concerned. And and that goes into the conversation of how the phrase classical music has grown to represent what it does, you know? And again, and I I think there are lots of power structures involved um, with, with that conversation, even ones that, that deal with race, you know, um, China and um, India have musical traditions that go back way further than anything that happened in, in uh, Western Europe. You know, if you want to go into um, Africa and all of the, um, and all of the, you know, the uh, percussive based music and the traditions there, you yeah. know, um, you know, it, it should be a scar on, you know, on American classical music that it doesn't really engage um, the music of the indigenous populations as, as much as it should. You know, it's still sort of novel to hear a piece featuring a Native American flute or a powwow drum or something, you know. So, you know, a, a, along with, you know, changing playlists and, and trying to create a, a, a new taste for people and, and, and reshaping the canon, we also have to acknowledge that the phrase classical music itself has been... Um, whitewashed for for lack of a better word mm-hmm. and, and we need to include so much more into that canon including music that sounds a lot like you know what you played there by uh, by Shaw Caroline Shaw you talked about when you were on need to know you talked a little bit about yeah that, shout out to them that was a great that was a great trip that was uh, uh, illuminating for me to hear you all sit and talk about it especially since you know you were right up to speed with them <laughs> on on popular music and hip-hop, you know, and you talked about Nipsey Hussle and his passing and the, and the big impact that he had. Yeah. But at the same time, you've got all this in your bag about classical music, and I love to hear the uh, how you brought them gifts to try to turn them on to classical music by customizing the music to each individual person. That was yeah. a nice touch. Yeah, and, and, you know, we all have that. And, again, Kathleen and I go into that. You know, she she is a white woman um, who is queer so there mm-hmm. are there there's intersectionality there you know there, there are certain challenges she has despite the fact that she's white you know along with those privileges she has to do with difficulties of traversing you know the, the the industry of classical music as a woman and then how being queer plays into that and 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 everything else that goes along with it you know we we all have so much baggage um yeah. and and so many experiences the problem is there is a type of person and a type of experience, especially in classical music, that has been held above the rest. And um, and I'm here to, to shatter that. I'm here to change all of that. And 
And uh, it was great to, to speak with Kathleen about that and really get her perspective on how race plays into classical music as someone who is not a person of color, but someone who is very uh, proudly um, an ally and someone who's interested in in reaching uh, these points of equity with, within our industry and beyond. So it seems to be becoming a bit of a trend that um, people ask, um, you know, how how free they're able to speak during my interviews. Katie and Delaney asked that, as did um, Kathleen. So this is, uh, she, I, I, well, first of all, I assured her that, you know, she could speak as freely as she wished, and, and this is where uh, we got started. When I, when I had um, a couple people on, uh, yesterday, that was also one of their first questions. Like, why? Uh, what? What? What am I allowed to say? What am I not allowed to say? Why? Do, why do you think that's a thing uh, that we even think about? Like, why, why is that even a question? I think that when we're considering talking about race, um, audience is absolutely vital because the I guess like the questions that I would bring up um, or the comments that I would make about the impact or the experience would be very different. And, and like, I, it seems weird to say that too, yeah. um, just because like we need, to, we need to get to a point where we can talk about race in ways that are authentic across the board. Um, but like how I talk about race with my friends and like what I'm learning is very different from what I would say to a group of people who like, I don't know, maybe we're having a more professional conversation. Yeah. And I yeah. think part of it is admitting what you don't know. And even that word professional is kind of loaded. Like, right. well, what does that mean? What is professional dress? What is pro- professional um, decorum? You know, yes. what, what, what does that even mean? Well, and, and a lot of that is, I mean, it's so tied up in class and race. And yeah. we don't like, we don't even, if, you, if you're, if you grow up in a culture, um, where you are taught to dress a certain way or taught, you know, even business casual. Like, what does business casual mean? Right, right. I mean, like, I had to look that up and double check just because I'm an informal (laughs) person. But um, you don't even stop to think about the potential barriers and um, whether or not things are accessible until you hit a roadblock. Like, and so for me coming here, I'm hearing about all sorts of roadblocks that I never personally experienced, and it makes me wonder, okay, what are the roadblocks that are preventing us from getting more diverse submissions for the show? Or like, what are, what are the roadblocks that are preventing us from talking to more people of color? Yeah. Um, and sometimes, sometimes it's like, sometimes I can identify them, like sometimes having time is a, is a roadblock. Right. Um, but also sometimes having like, I was just thinking in the last session, okay, we have all of these wonderful organizations that are putting on concerts around the country and yet we don't have recordings from them. So do they know that we exist and we're interested? And if so, how do we show interest? It'll require us to like reach out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and also like recording. Mm hmm. Like yeah. what are the what are the resources for recording? Well, let's let, let's take one step back and sort of define that word um, we. So um, so so let's rewind a little bit. Yeah. I'm I'm curious about your um, your relationship uh, with classical music as an art form. Like how how does that we as classical musicians or, or people who work in the classical field um, apply to you as far as your upbringing? Like, you know, when was the first time you heard classical music or when did you begin to, you know, sort of seek it out as a, as a profession? Mm-hmm. So I was raised um, in, a, in a family that loved music. 
and like my dad sang in the church choir and he was a musician, just kind of amateur for fun. Yeah. Um, and then I started taking lessons and I was really, you know, I had a role model. Her name was Sarah and shout she, out to Sarah, right? Sarah, Sarah, <laughs> uh, she's so cool. And I wanted to be her. Um, and like now I acknowledge she looked like me. Um, and all my teachers looked like me Yeah. and they, I was just thinking about my, my mentor, um, Jed O'Leary today and how many opportunities he gave me to not just learn how to play music, but how to, um, teach and like mentor other students. Mm -hmm. And someone took a chance on me and really, like he really helped me figure that out and was just willing to go there. Um, and so that has always stuck with me. My path to um, working on a classical music radio station was not linear. I never intended to go into music for work. Um, and so when I came back to classical music, that for me was very profound because I was coming from a, a writing standpoint um, and like more of a creative standpoint from that end, like creating and, and not writing as in like writing music, but writing as in writing as like prose. Yes, or, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, and so my focus the past like six years has been really like literature, identity, and um, kind of meaning making, and how that relates to um, basically like feminist systems and uh, queer systems and looking at gender and class and race and stuff like that. But like the race part has always been in there, but I haven't had as much experience or like conversations around that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, I have to say it's, you know, the, the subject of race and I've been coming um, to the, to the Sphinx conference for years now in, in a, you know, from a performer's perspective and, um, you know, thinking about this conference in a, you know, media sort of way has, has really uh, opened up some interesting ideas for me. You know, mm-hmm. you know, we, we say over and over again how uncomfortable it is to talk about race, but um, from my perspective, you know, the fact of the matter is that it's difficult for people of color too, especially people of color in classical music because there are so many rules that uh, we're expected to, to play by and, 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 and so many, you know, sort of um, status quos that mm-hmm. we um, maintain either, you know, actively or, or, or passively. So really, you know, coming up through this system and then going back to call things out can be, you know, can, can be a, a challenge for sure, at least, at least a challenge for me. Yeah. Well, and I can see where that's like really triggering too, to, to just address the fact that some of these issues, especially with like getting people to feel like they belong in classical music, are so systemic, and they start way back beyond like, you know, beyond how your conservatory experience felt. Yeah. Um, and and like, you know, if we ch- try to trace lines of power, it's like I I feel like I'm hearing all of these really great ideas for people of how to. Um, be more inclusive and promote diversity and they're very small targeted efforts which are great for affecting change on a small level Mm -hmm. but like if we pay like if we trace this through line we're still having problems at the level above um we're still having people who you know i've just i've been struck again at um the lack of like positions of leadership that include people of color and we have all of 
all of these organizations I'm seeing here where people are like, you know what, I'm going to create my own thing. And that's been really fruitful. Mm -hmm. And I just think about like all of the opportunities that organizations are missing out on because there's like they're not actively and intentionally making space for people of color to have their voices heard. Yeah, I I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And and um, when you you know, we also have to be really cognizant about the way we define classical music, Mm -hmm. I, I, I feel. I mean, my my go-to example is the music of India and the music of China. You know, those traditions span back thousands and thousands of years. And right. as far as they're concerned, that's classical music. You know, and you can go to you can go to any continent. When I when I think about the music of um, the music of Africa, I'm thinking more about um, uh, percussive uh, music uh, more so than than melodic music, but that phrase classical music is just pinned down on the traditions of Western Europe. And something that's been explored at this conference a little bit is the fact that that canon, that Western classical music, was very actively and very specifically funneled to only showcase white men. And and there Mm -hmm. are definitely examples from Western Europe and today, of course, that, that go outside of that. But you know, when we say classical music, who are we talking about? We're talking about Mozart, Tchaikovsky, Rachmaninoff, you know, all of these white men who wrote, you know, very uh, beautiful and very influential music. But it sort of, from my perspective, lives in a space and time that uh, we only acknowledge, you know, that that's that's it. And and it becomes a challenge for me even to you know sustain this idea of the importance of classical music when it's so non-representative. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I totally agree with that. I think there's there's nothing wrong to appreciating Mozart and Beethoven. Um, yeah, sh- shout out both of them. I love right, them. Yeah. <laughs> like, magic and, magic flute is is my joy. <laughs> there's like a lot of really good stuff in in the canon. However, when we're looking at systems of oppression. Um, and, you know, I, I spent a lot of time kind of pushing back on the the literary canon um, when I was going through my schooling. And I just, why why can't we have some of everything, I guess, is, is part of it. And, and the other thing is, like, if we, if we stick to what's safe, um, then we're not going to, we're missing out. Mm-hmm. And it, it really is a disservice to our audience of listeners. Um, it's a disservice to the musicians who are creating this music and the composers who are creating this music. And also it's a disservice to history. Yeah. <laughs> like in 50 years, I mean, what are people going to remember and who are we, who are we lifting up now that will become part of our, like, our future canon? Like we are building our canon and we need to include people of color. Absolutely. I, and and we already, in a contemporary way, I feel like we've already sort of um, cemented so many non-classical artists into, you know, the, the halls of fame, whether you're talking about Elvis or, um, you know, Beyonce. I, I think yep. she's going to live in the history books forever. <laughs> Kendrick uh, Lamar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, and I'm, I, I, I struggle. You know, I, I really, I really, really struggle because so many of these systems that are that are upheld um, 
are upheld. You know, just just the the fact, and we and we just left a um, a panel about. Um, I forget. Oh, changing the status quo, mm-hmm. and you know, it's hard for me to even remember the title of that panel because I don't, I don't think that was executed. Yeah, you know, <laughs> a, a challenge of the status quo. You had, um, you know, uh, people representing, you know, some of the quote unquote top uh, conservatories around the uh, around the country, and that in itself is a perpetuation of the status quo. The idea that there is a top conservatory or right. top conservatories because I didn't go to them and mm-hmm. you know I, I have fine. yeah I'm, I'm good you know I've, <laughs> I've had careers that many of those students did not have you know right. and, and that's you know no shade to any of them but you know it's just the fact of the matter is that there's so much more than what is already placed up on the pedestal um, and um, and you had a, a very visceral you know, response toward the end of that uh, panel, I understand. Yeah, I did. Um, So as a white woman at a conference for black and Latinx musicians, um, I am in the minority here. It's not a situation that I often find myself in. Mm -hmm. Um, And the first panel that we, that I saw was um, about daring to dialogue. And really a lot of what I got out of that was, at what moments do we need to step back, acknowledge our privilege, and lift up the voice of others? And so I've been thinking about that all week and about how when I go back to work, um, how I can, as a white woman, advocate and be an ally. And this panel comes up, and it's you know leadership positions, and all of the people are white. And... I'm like, this is just kind of weird that, you know, obviously, obviously these initiatives at the schools for diversity, I mean, I would hope that they're not happening in like a little white silo. Like, where are the people <laughs> of color who are helping out and like actually, you know, building these programs? Yeah. Um, and, and this was such a cool opportunity for these institutions to really give voice to people of color. So, like, why can't you have someone who is black? being a representative of this school. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I guess the question could be, would that be authentic, though? Or, or, or are they just sending this person because right. this like is you, Sphinx? And you don't know their att- intentions. Yeah. Um, but in, in this case, I feel like actions really spoke, um, really spoke, because I was watching all of these Sphinx scholars and people who are here lining up at the microphones to ask questions. People of color. People of color. And all of these questions flowing in through Slido that were calling out the fact that there was no representation on this panel and asking, okay, what are you guys actually doing? Yeah. You know, and there were comments that were like, hey, there are lots of people in line wanting to ask questions and we can't get to them. And what was happening was you had three white people in significant positions of power taking up all of the airtime and just talking and talking and talking and talking and filling up that time without getting to the questions and the commentary of the people whose voices needed to be heard. Yeah. Um, so for me, as a white woman, it was, it was a profound realization of like what not to do. <laughs> um, and where, like, where do we need to sit back and let people, you know, in some cases express their grievances. Mm-hmm. And I think that would have been more empowering to hear students and musicians 
and um, really allow them to take these leaders to task a little bit. Um, obviously, we don't need to turn it into like <laughs> a, a bloodbath. But well, it, do we not? I don't but, know. I mean, maybe we do, <laughs> because because it just seems so like so representative of what I think a lot of orga- organizations are experiencing. Yeah. Where like we say we're all gung ho about diversity, but then at like at the moment where people can really step up and talk, they're silenced because for some reason. Joe Schmo needs to elaborate on all of his efforts. That, but what do those like, efforts mean? Right. If, yeah. Well, and, and and I'll say I, I didn't I didn't attach my name um, to the question, but 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 that mo- that top that top rated question at that panel was actually mine. You know? uh. So 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 for the people that weren't there, the you know again the the name of the panel was um, uh, challenging the status quo, and when the panel came out and I saw, you know, all white people and then a member of, you know, the the Met Orchestra, you know, this other powerhouse, you know, sort of status quo up on the hill institution, you know, they didn't have to say anything for me to already recognize the problem Mm -hmm. that, 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 that is, that is existent right here in this moment. Right. And I think also this is like an intersection of class. Um, and, and that is, I think, going to be one of our, it is, and it's going to continue to be one of our biggest barriers for the classical music world, because there are people who do not want to give up their class privilege and who want to perpetuate their class privilege by making classical music seem exclusive. And that was actually a conversation explored uh, in a way at a panel we went to uh, yesterday when... Um, when Stanford Thompson, shout out to Stanford, he mm-hmm. uh, talked about building um, a table or asking people to get up from the table, you know, yes. uh, proverbially speaking. What, what, what are your opinions on that? If there is, let's say there's a table that's representative of um, power and influence. Mm-hmm. Is it better for some people to get up from that table to allow other people to have their own space? Or should you know, we be building our own tables and, and saying whatever they're doing their thing, we're, we're over here. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I've it's been, hard for me too. Yeah, I've been, I've been thinking about that and that's kind of like one of my main takeaways is, you know, if we, it, it really comes down to like who's, who's responsible for fixing this problem. Um, and I think a lot of the time the burden falls on people who are just now being invited to a place at the table. Mm-hmm. And and that is its own level of trauma um, and its own level of um, microaggression, I guess. Just like the fact that we're like, hey, okay, class, the, the classical radio, we're, we're allowing more voices to be heard, um, but we're expecting them to do the work. Like, you know, like if we're all at the table together, are we all doing the work we need to do to deserve to be at the table? I think that goes back to the, the question of, of uh, intent mm-hmm. and, and w- what is really behind a, a lot of people, you know, participating in these sorts of conversations yeah. and, and doing this work. Yeah. So I think, I think it can be really empowering to create a new table um, and I'm, I'm saying that as, as a queer woman you know like sometimes 
fitting into the status quo is like at some point we get fed up and we don't need to do that. Mm. Um, and we deserve to have something that celebrates us. Um, and I think about the Gateways Music Festival yeah. and just how like unapologetic it is. And, and that is creating a new table. Yeah. Um, Shout out to Lee Kuntz. Yes. <laughs> um, and, so, and so, like, if we create a new table, that's great. Um, the, one of the problems that I struggle with then is, like, okay, so how, how do we... I mean, like, how do we how do we bring the other table along then? You know, like, yeah. I don't I don't want it to be someone's burden to pull people into this state of like acknowledging that Black Lives Matter or like anything like that. Like, I don't I don't want it to be a burden on someone, but at the same time, like, we have a responsibility, and I and and I say we as white people, um, we have a responsibility to do the work to bring our our other white people along. Yeah, I think. And if we if we don't have everyone at the table, then that's going to be a lot harder because people who are resistant to being at the table with people of color are not going to see that it's important to have everyone's voices. And they can like, just go is, ahead and get up, as yeah. far as I'm concerned. Yeah, this is, <laughs> right. yeah. So and like even as I'm talking about this, I'm like, God, I don't, I don't know, and I feel like I don't have the authority to talk about this. And and you know, to be honest, that's the way I feel oftentimes when it comes to many issues. You know, I, you know, and I, I'm a soldier for really putting uh, more diversity into classical music, uh, as far as race, but. I also believe in um, in gender equity, and there are a lot of conversations there that I just you know sit out on. I def I listen. You know, it's not like I'm ignoring the conversations, but I definitely you know take uh, you know I'm on the sideline, making sure that I'm able to understand and I'm able to learn, but that I'm not co-opting, and mm-hmm. and that tends to you know be what happens so so yeah. so often. It's all about recognizing when each of us are in that privileged position um, and when we should just, you know, sit back and and listen. Yes. And we've got a long way to go, don't we? Yeah. Especially in classical music, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, I think think that, I think that for for me um, and kind of what I've heard from some of my white colleagues, the intention, like, is good. Right, like they like we want to program more works by musicians of color. Well, what do they say about good intentions? That's the the, the the road to hell is right. lined with yeah, good intentions. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so like, it, it's we. I think sometimes we just don't know where to start. And for me, starting is always with stepping back and listening and learning, um, and making sure that I'm not forcing people to do additional emotional labor to get me to the place I need to be. Yeah, like. I'm not going to expect someone to teach me everything. Like I need to actively seek out resources to get myself to a level where I can move beyond listening and actually move into a more effective allyship. Mm -hmm. And so I think going forward for me, I'm going to be looking at ways that I can do that. Um, Ways that I can amplify voices who have not been heard ways to 
challenge other white people to consider their actions and their intentions um, and to, to really just kind of figure out how we can all talk about this to become more effective. Mm-hmm. Because so often, I think, conversations of race end up with everyone being like, it's a tough conversation. And that's Shoulder where shrug. Right. Yeah. We're trying, which is great. But, like, how can we move from trying to doing? So, and, and I have to make it clear that, um, you know, Sphinx is doing incredible work, oh, you know, yeah. and, and, and we're only having this conversation because we had, um, you know, sort of a critical reaction to something that happened, which in itself is important and I think right. very, very valuable to really think about how, um, once again, good intentions, how, yeah. how, how platforms set up to have these conversations can even miss the mark themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but in itself, it, it, it creates, you know, really great conversations. I, I'm sure there are many um, aspects of Sphinx that have inspired you in a, oh, in a yeah. more positive oh, way. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, like, I don't, I don't want to be an, a naysayer. Um, I think that was the biggest learning point for me yeah. um, for what not to do and how to improve. But, um, I mean, first of all, seeing last night the Sphinx tank, seeing all of the, you know, young, promising black and Latinx entrepreneurs. And that was the uh, inaugural Sphinx tank. So, so, just, so just so that people know, uh, like uh, Shark Tank, <laughs> uh, at Sphinx tank, at, at the inaugural Sphinx tank, um, four, um, well, three individuals and one team presented ideas, you know, that parlayed in some way with uh, diversity, with culture, with race, and with classical music. So one of them, uh, one of them won a $10,000 grant to, to fuel their project. I'm really excited to see where that project in particular goes. Um, and there was also an audience choice, and everyone ended up getting uh, a $1,000 grant to sort of help them on their way. And, um, you know, that, that spirit of being a leader and being an entrepreneur especially is, 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 is sort of new in, in the world. I mean, it, it's not, you know, there have always been entrepreneurs, but I've heard people much older than me say that this, this is a time when more people than ever are really trying to do their own thing and really trying to branch out and not punch someone else's time clock. Yeah, and I thought that was really cool. I thought it was cool to see um, people's passion projects and really get, because I feel like you get to know someone through what they yeah. ask for money for. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and like, and that sounds kind of, I don't know, but like if you really believe in something to the point where you are going to put, I mean, as much effort as these people have, I mean, these, are, these weren't just ideas. And I guess that's the, that's the big thing for me. They weren't yeah. just ideas. They were totally fleshed out. They were already in progress. They were just trying to make it to the next level. Yeah. And um, it sucks that money is always attached to that next level. Yes. Yeah. Totally. Class. Hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Full circle. <laughs> and and to hear the questioning of um, the panel, like, I mean, if anyone was in the audience last night, it was very clear this wasn't just a celebration of these entrepreneurs. Like, they were taken to task for what did their budget look like and what were the flaws. Mm-hmm. And it was a really professional and like there's that word again yeah. <laughs> um, but like it was a really legit thing yeah and I think that in in seeing a very fleshed out 
legitimize, it was legitimizing. And I think that people in the audience, if they had an idea, it, it could be like, hey, this will be taken seriously. Not just like, hey, I'm inspired by your work, but actually, no, I believe in you to the point where like, I will consider giving you money. Yeah. Um, and, and that was really, really powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, seeing the seeing the mute, the performances has been fun too for me. Yeah. Um, and talking to other musicians that, you know, we haven't yet had on our show, but I'm like, we could we we need to share this with our audience. You're doing great work, and um, how can how can we use our platform to amplify that? And what do you think would be one of the or some of the results of, of, of doing that. Let, let's say, you know, performance today goes completely left field. And, um, and I think I, I'm thinking of rap as just as far away from the status quo uh, as we could get when it comes to quote unquote classical radio and classical programming. And I think I've heard a little rap on PT before, but, but, but let's say there is, you know, a hip hop symphony mm-hmm. that, is you know fully embodies the spirit of hip hop all the way down to subject matter and and language you know next to um the the symphonic sounds mm-hmm. what do you think presenting something like that would do what do you think some of the results of that would be i mean of course there're going to be people to turn off the radio unfortunately yeah. which i mean you'll get that with anything like i i turn off the radio for some things i'm like i'm not i'm not going to pretend like i listen to everything that's on the radio um, I, I think that if we if we intentionally curate a a program that includes something in the left field um, and and we structure our program to really emphasize why it's relevant, um, then people might be more willing to be along for that journey. Like, if we're, we, w- we want to take our audience and expose them to new stuff unapologetically. Um, but, but, but what, you know, one of the things I was thinking about is bringing in new listeners. I feel mm-hmm. like, I feel like something like that would, would get, you know, someone who may have never listened to performance today or public radio, classical radio, you know, they'll, they'll come in and, and feel like they, their perspective matters and, yeah. and their, you know, their experience uh, and their relationship with music matters even to the orchestral stage, even to the concert stage. Yeah, and I think that'd be awesome. And then that really would encourage us to question, like, should we emphasize our current audience or should we emphasize our potential new audience when we're programming? Like, oh, do that's we a do, conversation. Yeah, do we do promising programming or comfortable programming? And like when we do a mix, how do we get our future audience to listen? Yeah. Like that goes down to marketing and how we engage with communities and audiences too. There's so many pieces of the puzzle because you because you need... You know, you need a, a, a diverse set of people in marketing. You need mm-hmm. a diverse set of people in in uh, the performance of the music and in, in the presentation of the music. Mm-hmm. And yikes, it, yeah. it's it's a lot to to wrap your mind around. It, it seems it is. And I will say, we did um, a couple weeks ago. We had a it was a symphonic piece that was EDM inspired. Nice. So it was Who, like, who's it by? Do you remember? Oh gosh, I don't. But he had gone to the Electric Forest Festival. Like he had gone to a big music festival, and was really struck by 
kind of the marriage of technology and nature. Yeah. Because um, it's like this massive EDM festival in like Redwoods. So you're like, what? Um, and I know that we got some people who were not fans of that piece. Um, but we also got a lot of really positive feedback uh, where people are saying, hey, we want more of this. And I think, I think that's the thing that we need to remember is there are always going to be people who are resistant to change and resistant to development. But for you know every one person who's a naysayer, there is a lot of, I mean, there are a lot of people who, who want that. Yeah. And um, why not give that more? And, I, I don't know. Like, and I'm sure there's, you know, I'm, sh- I'm sure there is an, an, an example to, to go against, you know, my point. But it seems like re- resisting change has never been, you know, the right side of yeah. anything like yeah. what, what, when has resisting change or resisting evolution been um been seen in retrospect as something good i mean right. I, i'm not thinking of anything right now yeah and i think that can certainly apply to the way classical music lives in our society um the way we think about what it is mm-hmm. the way we think about um who it should be targeted to and 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 that could lead to to so much yeah well and and i'd, I'd like to see it you know, continue to exist in the land of the living. Um, and, and even if we're playing music by people who are dead, where is the focus? Is it on a history lesson? Is that history lesson important to helping us understand the future and what's going on now? Or is that history lesson kind of perpetuating the glorification of the masters who have gone before and then setting current people up to always be measured against that right like i don't know if that even no no i I definitely know what you mean so so sort of validating the sound of today's music based on you know the music of of yesteryear yester yester century right even 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 within the umbrella of classical music yeah and what we call it it's so different yeah like so how do you compare apples to oranges it's like i'm not gonna compare the nutrition advice from the 1800s to like <laughs> what we understand about nutrition in the body now. Yeah. And, um, I do prefer oranges for the record. <laughs> <laughs> so, so like, you know, we, we don't need to erase our past. We need to acknowledge it. Um, and you know, Quinice was having this great project with it celebrating the past and understanding where our future has seated from. Yeah. Um, and shout out Kwanis, Arts Administrators of Color. Super great. And, and I think that we all need to acknowledge our, our musical roots. But when we say musical roots, that needs to include like stuff beyond the Western canon. Um, because there are so many influences at this point in classical music that are not the canon. Um, so how do we, how do we look at our history, our collective musical history in classical music as a genre, to include jazz, hip hop, folk music, because those are roots. Yeah. Um, Country, God help us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just joking. Gospel. Just joking. Gospel. Yeah. yeah I mean, there's, of course, there's yeah. so much, and all of these threads are coming into our current, like our current stick music, our current genre, and yet we still have this thread line that's only focusing on one route. 
of the tree. So as you leave Sphinx and return back um, to our very chilly home in St. Paul, <laughs> Minnesota, what, what can you think of for yourself as being step one? What is, what is the first thing you're going to do when we get back to work to sort of propel this idea of, of equity and, and, and cultural competency in classical music? Um, as it applies to what we do. Yeah, so I have a lot of reflecting to do. Um, and I think that's the the ultimate first step, is that I have to put in the work to think about what did I learn? What felt uncomfortable? Like, what, where did I feel personally challenged? Um, and why? And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be doing a lot of thinking on the plane. And then... I need to figure out, okay, what in my current role can I do to advocate for being more inclusive um, and celebrate celebrate musicians of color um, and really validate the authentic and legitimate and valuable work they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's the first step. What can I personally do? And then I would really like to figure out how, how I can talk to other people who are also white about race issues in our jobs. Where are we improving? Where do we need to improve? Um, what does that look like? And like, what are the barriers that are preventing us from doing the work? And I think, I think at, at, at some level, we all know that this burden of change has unfairly fallen on the shoulders of people of color. Um, but it's really sinking into me that like, if we are in institutions that are still predominantly white and we're expecting the change to be sloughed off onto the shoulders of people of color, yeah. like that is, first of all, not fair. It's incredibly traumatic to be like forced to have that role all the time. And it's not going to necessarily change as much as we need it to. Um, So identifying these barriers of like, why are we as white people not being as effective allies as we can be? Um, And how can we get to the point where we can really, really affect change yeah yeah move the needle and and you know while I agree that the onus should not fall on black people as a populace to to fix these systemic issues the role that I feel like I have to take is to uh, is to not allow my experience and and my voice and and my experience and my relationship with classical music to be invalidated in right. any way. Mm-hmm. If if I, if I like this because of this, you know, that's okay. You know, I love the symphonies of William Grant Still because, first of all, he was a black man who overcame, you know, the challenges of the early 20th century, you know, mm-hmm. as a black man from the South, from Arkansas. Um, he incorporated uh, spirituals and blues, and that's music that I have a relationship with, and that's why I like this. Mm-hmm. And and I don't think there's there's any need to to validate that beyond that. I, right. I, I think black people we really need to make sure we're not allowing 
ourselves uh, to be invalidated by the way we acknowledge our art and our history mm -hmm. in in the wider conversations. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much okay. for uh, chatting with me. Uh, uh, you want to tell the listeners um, how they can uh, listen to your show and what it is and all that? Yeah, so um, I'm an associate producer for PTE Performance Today, and you can listen to us on the web if you prefer, and that is um, always available two hours every day. Um, it's at yourclassical.org slash performance today. Ooh. Ooh, I remember that. Um, and also, you can listen to it on your local radio station. Yeah. So it's carried around the country. Um, it's fun two hours. So Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll see you back in St. Paul. Yes, thank you. Kathleen Bradbury in conversation with Garrett McQueen here on Triloquy. And I have to say the, the phrase that comes out of there for me is the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we got to make sure, you know, we, we have we have to check what we're doing beyond what we intend. And I think that's what that means at the end of the day. And I also think that we also have to be courageous enough to go, where can I help? You know, how what what can I be doing? And be and if you want to be an ally, be prepared uh, for the honest answer. And and you know, quickly before we go, I'll I'll give the example. I was listening um, again to the Need to Know podcast. Shout out to Steph Savon and uh, Alex. They had on a guest who um, kind of went into the conversation of what does it mean to be an ally, and um, and what would you tell a, a white person looking to help out in her black run in her very equitably black um, organization. And what she said was she would tell the white person to go find a black person who is qualified for the position that they want. Mm. So some, you know, sometimes being an ally isn't comfortable. Sometimes being an ally doesn't, um, doesn't uh, immediately benefit you, but, but that's what it means. And, and, and that's, that's the point we need to, to get to. And, and with folks like Kathleen, um, I think we're making strides, certainly in the world of classical music. Now, next week, we're not going to do an opus proper uh, like we have been. We're going to do like another overture of sorts. Right, right. So uh, next week, there's a very important holiday called Juneteenth. Do you, What do you know about Juneteenth? Next to nothing. Okay, well, um, on June 19th, back in uh, 1865, um, a general rode down to uh, Galveston, Texas, and um, announced the end of the Civil War. And that is what um, we remember as uh, the, the, the bit of the, you know, what freed the slaves. So, so after that, um, you know, it was official that slavery in America had ended. And, uh, and, so, to, the, and to this day, uh, black folks across the country celebrate that as the day our ancestors were freed. Um, but were we freed? Are we free? You know, and those are conversations we're going to have next week. So be listening for a, uh, another overture, intermezzo, and tracked sort of uh, installment of Triloquy. Yeah, we're breaking the chains next week, so I hope y'all uh, will see you there. Be on the listen. <laughs>